You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 4, The Digital Age. I found it very difficult to untangle the digital age from everything that I was writing, which posed a pretty major problem considering I was writing a book about the digital age. But in the beginning, it wasn't something I was able to conceptualize that easily. It's ubiquitous. Everything around us is the digital age. And while I remember a time where we didn't have the internet, I remember the first time I chatted with someone online, which completely blew my grade seven mind. I have a really difficult time, and I think a lot of people have a really difficult time understanding just how the digital age is shaping us. And fundamental to the way in which it shapes us is that technology mediates our discussions. And sometimes that mediation is wonderful and it is helpful. It creates different kinds of accessibility, different kinds of sensory experiences. But sometimes it gets in the way of our interactions. And sometimes it's both. Defining the digital age for me was really difficult as I wrote this book. And While I I didn't write this book in the order that the chapters appear in, most of the chapters from the conception to what was written is the order that I chose. With chapters one and chapters two, which were the, the previous two episodes of this podcast, I wrote them together. So they were written in some sort of order that ended up in the book pretty similarly. But this chapter was the last one to appear. It helped to bridge the gap between the part of the book that was the history and the part of the book that tries to analyze how feminism operates within the digital age. And key to that was me being able to explain it, understand it, synthesize it, and work through the ways in which digital organizing is beneficial and destructive. To do this in the book, it took a lot of distance from having written all of the other chapters, looking at the content in all of the other chapters and saying, what is missing? Have I defined what I even mean by the digital age? And is the digital age that I live in uh, an elder millennial, uh, someone who does remember a world before the internet, though barely, and as someone who's extremely online, does that look the same for someone who's always lived with the internet Or does that look the same as someone who remembers the internet existing for the first time when they were an adult? And so this episode looks at feminism in the digital age, what the origins of digital feminism are, what the successes of it has been, and what are the problems that have emerged in recent history that indicate, one, what we're doing online as feminist activists isn't working, and two, we need to look at ways of organizing that have existed for a long time, but have fallen by the wayside as the neoliberal era has taken over and ask ourselves, what about analog organizing, organizing that doesn't rely on digital platforms to mediate our interactions with one another? What can that give us? 
what kind of power can that build into our movements or our collectives? And how can we harness that power to start making some real fundamental change in this country? If you read anything written in North America about the early days of feminism and the internet, it invariably goes back to the blogosphere. It was online that feminists met each other for the first time across huge distances through writing uh, in the earliest days in the late 1990s and the early 2000s through expressing themselves in blogs and articles and in websites that would eventually become very mainstream and influence mainstream political coverage and news coverage. A lot of people who came out of those blogs went on to become journalists in mainstream political outlets. And that had a big impact on bringing issues that had been discussed in the early days of the feminist blogosphere into the mainstream. Issues like better analysis on gender-based violence or the need for political representation. This meant that as the mainstream feminist movement was in decline or collapse or was atrophying, new spaces opened up that had never existed before at all for feminists who desired to express themselves through writing. They created networks, they created new digital magazines, new projects, and would form an engine of feminist knowledge and feminist debate that had the potential to work in the digital age. But we're talking about the early 2000s, where the internet was not as big, as omnipresent as it is today. And for a lot of uh, political writers especially, that feminist blogosphere was a location where they could go and find work, uh, even if it was poorly paid or not at all paid. They could still get a platform to write about politics where they might never be hired to do political blogging or political writing in a mainstream magazine or news organization. In 2011, American journalist Emily Nussbaum argued that these spaces emerged in opposition to the male-dominated mainstream media and emerging political blogosphere. She wrote, The blogosphere has transformed feminist conversation, reviving in the process an older style of activism among young women. It's a renaissance that began around 2004 when feminist blogs were rare. Left-wing blogging was on the rise, a phenomenon that was strikingly male. The older style of activism that she references was the writing of manifestos and pamphlets and articles that underpinned feminist debate in the 1970s. And I, I reference some of that writing. If you're really interested to see what feminist writing looked like in the 1960s and 1970s, one excellent place to look is in the archives of the student newspaper for Simon Fraser University called The Peak. Their archives are all online, and you can actually see the debates that feminists were having in the 19. 60s, late 1960s and early 1970s around feminism on campus. It's really radical stuff. And Nussbaum was right. The internet it was a shot in the arm to feminists to be able to write in this kind of way again and amazingly connect with other people doing similar things. Of course, the downside to this is that lots of movements were engaging in this as well, most notably the far right, which I will get to later in this episode. 
Now, Nussbaum was writing in 2011, which in my mind was last week, but the calendar tells me was a decade ago. In 2011, the internet had had a mainstream foothold for several years by then. You know, Facebook had already been around Facebook had already been around for six years. Twitter had already been around for five years or whatever. Maybe these are not exact. doesn't matter. This is not a podcast on Facebook or Twitter. But in 2011, it was still not clear that digital organizing was not going to be the panacea that a lot of people thought it was going to be, right? We're still in the shadow of Occupy. We're still in the shadow of, of things being organized like the slut walks. And I'll talk in later episodes about the slut walks. But these these it, things that go viral, these political moments or statements that go viral, was this is the, the height of witnessing that in 2011. And a lot of feminist writers were saying, oh, my gosh, this is actually the future of feminism. Now, we have the benefit of being 10 years past that era. And we have the benefit of a couple of these flashpoint campaigns or situations to look back on and critically say, what did digital organizing help and what did digital organizing hinder in this situation? Digital organizing was also critical to the neoliberal transformation of political action. If it hadn't existed, it would be very difficult to convince the masses that the true way to social change passes through flashpoint situations that you find out about through this portal, and maybe it'll get you into the street, maybe not, but it self-appoints leadership within these movements. That's very hard to imagine uh, being possible or successful, <laughs> but we do believe that is possible or successful now. You know, you tweet out the problems that you have, you tweet out the ideas that you might have for social change, hoping that maybe if it goes viral, you'll be able to connect with other people that have same opinions as you do and actually start to organize something that might be bigger than yourself. It also allowed for leadership to emerge as being self-appointed. Leadership that was the people who had the biggest platforms online or who were the most adept at using digital media rather than leadership that had been chosen by a group of people or that had any accountability to a community. And, and this I will also talk about in later episodes, but this becomes a really difficult point because all of a sudden governments are able to pick and choose who their feminist leaders are much easier because there's other metrics that they can use to determine who's a leader and not just that this is the person who has been elected or chosen from this massive group of people and it is their formal voice. When you can start picking and choosing as government who you want to listen to, you do massive damage to the solidarity and the collective organizing that does exist among social movements. So keep this in mind. It'll probably be around episode eight, if I'm counting correctly. I believe it's chapter seven in the book because I'm not going to talk too much more about leadership today. But the digital age transformed what leadership looked like and created the space for a new kind of a leader to emerge that I would argue is counterproductive to what we need within feminist movement organizing, specifically on accountability. But back to those flashpoint moments that happen online, those things that go viral. There's one campaign that went viral like not many others have gone viral in the past decade. 
And I'm going to read a passage from the book that I wrote that specifically talks about the flashpoint feminist campaign from the last decade. Doing feminism in isolation has a very obvious limit. Feminism is most effective when practiced with others in real life with organized movements. This poses a big problem for hashtag feminism, which usually relies on the strength of a hashtag to propel individual online actions to affect social change. The biggest campaign of the 2010s was Me Too, a feminist campaign that was made for the digital age. It took North America by storm, amplifying the voices of people, especially women who had been sexually assaulted, to call out their abusers. Hashtag Me Too was a quintessentially modern campaign driven by social media with no national or internationally coordinated campaign behind it to give it power in real life. Hashtag Me Too influenced politicians and political rhetoric, but it didn't produce much that tangibly diminishes sexual assault. Hashtag Me Too was only possible in an era where social media played such an important role. It united people regardless of their location to talk about sexual assault. It got media attention. It was easy to engage with, and it was possible to engage with anonymously. But the benefits were far outweighed by the drawbacks of the social media platforms. As much as it helped feminists to organize, it did not produce enough social pressure to force governments to change anything. When thinking about hashtag Me Too, we have to ask ourselves, what was the capacity that it built into the people who participated in it to allow them to fight for change within their communities? Whether that community means local, whether that's in their workplace, whether that is a provincial level or even a national level change. But what was the thing about this campaign that trained activists, that brought activists together to decide, okay, the priority is going to be sexual assault and the law or sexual assault and the workplace or sexual assault related to age or related to identity or related to ability? There was nothing. There was no anchoring location to have concrete, coordinated and strategic discussions. Instead, what it did was it offered individuals the opportunity to try and fight stigma, to talk about really difficult things that they have experienced or that they have witnessed, to maybe warn other people about what they've experienced to say, be careful if you're around this individual. Hashtag Me Too was a very effective campaign for a few people who did manage to use the social media attention or public attention to get some level of action or justice by denouncing the sexual assault that they had experienced at the hands of someone. But for the vast majority of people and for the long-lasting bureaucratic or social or economic changes that perpetuate sexual assault and sexual harassment, hashtag Me Too could not deliver past that promise of awareness. And the big irony in this campaign, of course, which has been talked about a lot and has been talked about thanks to the tireless work of Tarana Burke, but the, the irony in this is that the Me Too movement, a movement that was started by Tarana in 2006 that organized among individuals and communities across the United States to talk about sexual assault, that the hashtag MeToo movement walks into this space that had already been created by social activism, by grassroots social activism, and takes up all the space, all of the attention away from the MeToo movement. 
hashtag me too becomes me too and it occupies this space as this transformative campaign that has the potential to fundamentally upend patriarchy and stop gender-based violence. But what the Me Too movement showed and what it shows still is that the path to, 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 to change, paths to victory, do not pass through viral campaigns and they don't pass through hashtags. They, they might start there. They might have connection to them. But they cannot replace the strategic organizing, the solidarity, the coming together of actually creating a movement. Now, movements have lots of different parts and they can look lots of different ways. And I don't want people to think that I have something in my mind that I'm trying to sell as the way that it should be. The rest of this podcast is going to be talking about what those spaces need and then the spaces can take on whatever form they need to take on for whatever people are organizing it. But the digital age has been very confusing to social activism and social movement organizing. And if you are someone that has never had any contact with a campaign, you've never occupied an office or been to more than 50 hours of mind-numbing meetings, let's say, for example, you might not really see some of this stuff. It might be kind of difficult to pierce through what is real and what is seemingly not exactly real. Because the awareness side of campaigns, while it's important, it has been privileged by people in power as being the most important. The problem with that is that it is not the most important. It is step one. Sometimes it's step three of a 20-step process, a 35-step process, I don't know, a 100-step process of fighting for social change. Because when we put so much into awareness as the key to fixing whatever issue it is that we want to fix, then the way that power looks at that, they say, oh, awareness. Yeah, we'll help you with awareness. We'll help you make people aware. We'll have days of awareness. We might wear Everyone comes to the office wearing buttons about awareness. There might even be meetings set up or task forces set up to do more awareness. And that's all important. Getting stories, people telling their stories, that's all very, very important. But when you have the stories and then you refuse to take action on them, that's where the real danger sets in because it's immobilizing. It makes people feel burnt out and depressed that there's that they've tried everything. They've shouted their sexual assault from the highest building in their city and there's nothing left that they can do. And that feeling is the direct result of us having this idea sold to us by corporations and by government that social media, the digital age is the key to social progress. In selling us this lie, they want us to forget analog organizing. They want us to forget the tools and the techniques that come with convincing someone one-on-one or holding a meeting or holding a difficult debate or creating knowledge together. All that might be possible in a way to do online, but that would never be replaced by the connections that we create when we come together in real life. I'm not going to get into all of the ways in which Me Too hasn't been able to move the needle enough on 
fighting sexual assault or sexual harassment. Though in the book, I do talk about some indicators that things just have not changed. In one uh, study through the company called HR Acuity that targeted 150 businesses globally that had a collective 4 million employees, they looked at what happened to harassment claims in the aftermath of Me Too. The claims went up. In the firms that had more than 20,000 workers, the claims went up by 84%, which is pretty impressive. But Liz Elting, who did this survey, looked closer at the numbers to see if there were actually tangible changes in the workplaces that could better deal with complaints of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And, And this is what she concluded. That means, at present, a solid majority of companies don't require a response to such claims, allowing allegations to continue to be swept under the rug. And so I go on to write, hashtag MeToo is the perfect neoliberal campaign because it reduces sexual assault to individual experiences and transactions, even if they are experienced by many people. Rather than demand that society change to no longer accept harassers, the onus to report an assault is placed on the survivor. The survivor needs to be resourceful enough to figure out where or how to report an instance of abuse, whether that means reporting to a superior at work or making the decision to go to police. And many survivors will never have the safety to be able to make a formal complaint. For BIPOC survivors, poor survivors, and others who are criminalized by police forces, going to the police is rarely an option. For survivors who seek support in the shelter system, they also might run into a roadblock. Shelter agencies have become overburdened by the new wave of complaints as survivors have more confidence to seek justice. The system that is built to try and address sexual assault becomes even more strained and outcomes that include justice actually become less likely. And so Me Too actually pushed more people to report and then find themselves in a situation where, oh, society actually doesn't have any way to deal with this. You know, it isn't just that this was a mistake, like, oops, we didn't fix the criminal system to make sure that it deals with sexual assault. This is a feature of the way that Canada exists. Gender-based violence, colonial violence, heteropatriarchy, and white supremacy are all built into the core of how Canada operates. And When you want to boil it down, it's just a question of power. And when sexual assault and sexual harassment becomes a question of power, then what you're talking about is attacking power structures. You're talking about attacking the profit motive. You're talking about attacking state security forces. And you're also even attacking the family structure that allows silence and abuse to perpetuate itself. You're talking about attacking religious organizations and other social clubs that might exist where sexual assault was rampant, or you're having to attack sports, you start to think about this and it becomes massive. It becomes impossible. And then neoliberalism taps you on the shoulder and says, no, you can just build awareness. You can just tweet it out. Go onto social media. Talk about what you're feeling. And all of a sudden that becomes the replacement for the hard work of organizing. The reality is that these issues are always overwhelming and they have always been overwhelming. And they are meant to be overwhelming. They're meant to be unmovable. They're not meant to feel like they're unmovable. And this is why we have to not look at individuals as 
uh, the solution to fighting against whatever issue we want to fight against, but it's communities of people. It's communities of people who might be attached to a sport, might be attached to a religious organization. It's voters. It's people within a community of a, of a town or a municipality or whatever that are coming together to fight for, for, for these changes that are so necessary. And when you are active locally, when you're fighting for something that might not save the entire world, but will make a tangible difference in the lives of your community, of the people in your community, that kind of small victory will propel you to the next victory. It will feel good, <laughs> which is really important. It'll give you something to celebrate with other people. But in the struggle of fighting for one thing, you will realize that you can snowball that kind of organizing to start making different changes, changes that might be not that obvious at the start of, of the campaign that you took on, but that become obvious as you're moving throughout the process of campaigning. These small victories or local victories uh, or, or things that are very localized, they are so important because they fuel larger struggle. They, they fuel larger victories. And if you don't start there, it can feel really difficult or you might find yourself reaching for shortcuts like trying to make something go viral or maybe trying to shame the mayor into making a specific decision. It might work, but it's not going to create any lasting structural change because the second that that shame is gone, the second that that pressure is gone, your victory is going to turn into dust. But until we start organizing in these fundamental, local, deep ways, we can be sure that the status quo will remain in place. A status quo that is racist, that is patriarchal, that is violent and colonial. And if we're not putting all of those things together and how we understand each of the issues that feminism touches, then we will never be able to get to the core issues that we want to fix. We can't talk about the digital age and the rise of left-wing activism online without talking about the rise in right-wing activism online. And that's the second part of this episode. The rise of far-right digital organizing has been endemic. It exists globally. It has resulted in very real violence that has happened in Canada and around the world. And it almost always has a misogynistic character to it that we talk about, but not enough. In Take Back the Fight, I talk about the murder that happened in, in Toronto in 2018, often called the Toronto Van Attack. And how this act of incel violence, violence that is deeply misogynistic, that blames women uh, on, for the, 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 the struggles or the challenges that different men have. This was the ideology that the, the Toronto van attacker was inspired by when he drove the van down a portion of Young Street in Toronto, murdering 10 people and injuring 16 others. Incels are very obviously misogynistic. That's, it's wrapped up in their name, and it's a very clear part of their identity. But 
In the far right in general, deep misogyny is at the core of how they organize and how they recruit. So everything from neo-Nazis and white supremacists to incels to uh, to Proud Boys to the Canadian expressions of it like the United We Roll or Yellow Vest people. And, and these groups use misogynistic violence to target politicians all the time. They, po- they target politicians, often women politicians, of course, and often that targeting them spills into real life acts of violence or threats. And they target other average people. There's this incredible power that the far right has online to completely shift conversations in a way that does not exist on the left at all. The connection that the far right has to very old and established political uh, organizations is obviously part of why they're so effective at this. And every far right has a toehold into some organization that is less radical than it is. That connection gives uh, creates a pipeline of ideas that goes from the the very far far right and then infiltrates into less far right organizations. And in Canada, you can see that combination going from the furthest right into Maxim Bernier's party, into the Conservative Party, and then into the Liberal Party and how they respond to these issues or don't respond to these issues. And we talk a lot about that in Canada. We talk a lot about the far right and what is to be done about the far right and not enough is being done about the far right. And all of that is true. But what we do not talk about is what is the role of the feminist movement in combating the far right online and in real life, especially considering women are among their principal targets. I'm going to read another passage from the book that talks about this as I ask aloud where were feminists in these important moments? And the moments that I'm referencing are the conservative leadership race, where it was between Andrew Scheer and Maxim Bernier, the rise of Jason Kenney, the rise of Doug Ford, and his uh, rise happening with uh, an alliance with Tanya Granich Allen, who's a far-right Christian crusader, I guess, over uh, Christine Elliott. And so here are my words. As the far-right rises online and in the streets— And as their rise gives oxygen to conservative politicians to move further to the right, the need for a mobilized feminist movement is greater than it ever has been. Feminists should be on the front line in the attack against the far right, confronting them in the street and targeting them through campaigns. When white nationalist Faith Goldie ran to be the mayor of Toronto, there should have been feminists dogging every one of her public appearances. But instead, the work was left to Antifa activists, no doubt a good number of whom are also feminists rather than mainstream feminist organizations whose reason to exist is to confront the kind of vile hatred Goldie profited from. Goldie has built her audience and brand on anti-feminism, a perfect location where a mobilized feminist movement should have been present to counter every public statement she made. I have to say I'm pretty glad that since I wrote those words, she seems to have turned into a pillar of salt and we haven't heard from, from Faith Goldie. But I think the sentiment behind what I wrote uh, is still absolutely true, and if not, even more true, uh, especially seeing the rise in the way the far right has has been so successful in taking over the anti-vaccine movement or creating the anti-vaccine movement, depending on how you want to look at that. And so I ask again, like, where is organized feminism? Where are organized feminists in coming up with ways to fight back against these attacks? The problem, of course, is that it, it, without 
organization, it means that some of us, uh, some of us more than others, are the ones that receive these attacks the most intensely. And then it becomes more of a martyr situation where you stand up every time that there's an attack and you're like, well, I also was attacked like that. And where were you then? Or, uh, oh, yeah, this is boring. I get attacked like this all the time, which is something I'm definitely guilty of saying. Having communities to actually confront this kind of logic is really important, not just because the logic perpetuates itself online and we're all online. So if we're going to talk about using digital tools usefully, let's talk about maybe how we can start combating some of the stuff online. But it's also important because the people who are falling into these logical traps are people in our towns, our cities, our rural communities. They're people who are are spitting out just incomprehensible hatred from on Facebook or on Twitter, uh, or they're coming to municipal council meetings, or they're even running for and winning school trustee positions. If they are not confronted consistently, if they're not confronted in their positions that they hold, if they're not confronted online, if they're not confronted with any opposition, it signals to other people that this is okay and it's acceptable. Except it is doing more damage to minority communities in this country than anything else. The damage can be seen through like justifying not being vaccinated, perpetuating the spread of COVID, which disproportionately impacts disabled people, poor people, older people, and racialized people. And it leaves the general population with a feeling of, oh, my God, there is nothing that can be done. There's nothing to be done. And I, I'd love to think, like, what would it look like today if there had been an organization that did exist to bring together grassroots feminist action and organizing under the same umbrella? Would this organization have oriented itself towards fighting the misogyny of the far right? Where would the organization's leadership, their provincial or local leadership or their national leadership be in, in, in fighting against some of these attacks or in lending their voices to uh, condemning or to offering ideas for how to deal with them? But we don't have that. And so it's just the realm of discussion and debate for us to imagine what could be possible. The common chorus when it comes to confronting or fighting the far right in mainstream Canadian political discussion is that the federal government has to do more. And that's a fine statement that I do agree with, except the question becomes, what does more look like? Because we are at the same time as exiting this pandemic, we are going to be left with the dregs of this far right mobilization from the pandemic. And once things start to relax, like once COVID starts to actually start disappearing or mutating into something that is live-withable, let's say, these folks are still going to be around. And and would there, if there had been some sort of feminist space or mobilization, would there be people who are more skilled, more supported, more capable of being able to confront this stuff? Would there be more confidence among people online to confront this stuff? Would there be more possibility for us to have created actual tools to be able to fight against far-right threats and far-right violence and, and protecting ourselves better from these constant attacks that so many of us experience? I think that we probably would have been able to create interesting new kinds of engagement and new support structures 
to help us navigate these really difficult times. Unfortunately, that's all the realm of theoretical because there there isn't. And in absence of having proof to be able to see whether or not it would be useful or it would be not useful, of course, we're, we're left looking at the reality in which we live saying, oh, it really would be cool if we had something. It really would be cool if we had something. And so we can trace the feminist digital space from the earliest days as a radical location to bring feminists together into something that managed to influence the mainstream media coverage, mainstream thought, uh, that, that trained a lot of individuals to go on to do other things, that did go on to do grassroots organizing, create new kinds of organizations, but ultimately one that did not give feminists the, ca- the same kind of locations to organize as our opponents have even with a campaign as powerful and, and, and major as hashtag me too, when the tide went out, we weren't left with any structure that we would be able to use to fight power. Instead, we were left with, oh, you had me too, or you still have me too. Of course, you can talk about your sexual assault. In the next episodes, I am going to be exploring what we lose and what we gain by having spaces where feminist movements can debate, discuss, come together, argue, build, appoint leadership, de-appoint leadership, and critically build knowledge that can then be exported to average people to help change opinions, to help change ways of thinking, ways of doing things, and to make possible in the minds of other people, of so many people, what seems absolutely impossible today. If you like this podcast, I hope you'll share it with everybody you know. This podcast was produced, edited, hosted, and written by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me too, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. The podcast was funded by Fernwood Publishing, And we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can check out all of Harbinger's left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com.